This session of the 130th episode of the Promoter 101 podcast is now called into order. Very official, like, unlike us. Well, it's the Promoter 101 podcast and we're back on the air. This week's show is the one you've all been waiting for. We got the big man himself. Jake Barry is here and he's not holding back at all. From ACDC, Madonna, U2, and The Stones, he's the production manager that can build and tour anything, anywhere. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Jake Barry is here. Also, Evenko's Dan Glick pulls no punches as he turns the table on me. Plus, Nederlander's Jamie Loeb is co-hosting with us. Welcome, Jamie. Why, thank you. Yo, this is Tommy Lee. Yeah, that's T. Lee. And you're listening to Promoter 101. Fucking turn this shit up, bitches. Hey, Jamie, where do you listen to the podcast? I like to mix it up. Sometimes it's Spotify, sometimes it's iTunes or iHeartRadio. What about you, Dan? I can't get enough of listening to us. So, like, I totally listen to it on Spreaker, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Connor, what about you? I'm pretty loyal to listening on YouTube and Google Music. So we're kind of available everywhere now. That's cool. If you got something to share with us, you can feel free to email us at steiny at promoter101.net. We're happy to respond to you day or night. If you'd rather hit us up on social media, you're more than welcome to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jamie Loeb. Luke is at W. Luke Pierce. Dan's at The Jew. And the show is at Promoters 101. That's Promoters with an S. That means plural, folks. And thanks to Jason at AEG, we're also Promoter 101 now on Twitter, which is kind of awesome. And we can also be found on Instagram. We're Steiny at Promoter 101. Luke is W. Luke Pierce. I'm Dan Presents. And Jamie, is it just Jamie Loeb? Just You got Jamie Loeb itself? I got Jamie Loeb, yes. Much to the tennis player Jamie Loeb's chagrin. <laughs> you can find us on Facebook at Promoter 101. And on Tumblr at Promoter 101 as well. And at those internets, we can be reached at Promoter101.com. Hi, it's Paula Palazzo from Live Nation Concerts Canada on Promoter 101. Dan, there's just no better way to name drop a ton of people than announce the birthdays for the week of March 5th through March 11th, 2019. That's right. And Tuesday the 5th, Jared Woods and Vicky Infinita celebrate birthdays. Wednesday the 6th, Todd Hunt celebrates his birthday. On the 3-7, that's Thursday, the king of comedy, Mr. Jeff Wills, celebrates his birthday. And Friday, March 8th, Kio Novina celebrates hers. And here's a fun fact. Kio and I used to work together, not at one company, but at two. Saturday, 3-9, Rob Hallett, David Farrar, Brian Ritter, and Amy Lynch all celebrate birthdays. Sunday, March 10th, Matt Swanson celebrates his birthday, as does Jamie Lenfesty. Monday, 3-11, Tom Simonson celebrates his birthday, an Aspen alum that we haven't seen in a while. So happy birthday to you, Tom. Come back. We miss you. Yeah, Tom, come back. Joy to the world and best seasonal wish on your happiest birthday from all your friends at Promoter 101. Hello. 
Gerald B. Henley here doing Promoter 101. It's time to turn the tables. Next, Evenko's Daniel Glick pulls no punches as he turns the table on Steiny and Zink. Hanging out with Daniel Glick, and it's only fair that you get a chance to turn the tables on me. What's on your mind? I got one question. When we met in Montreal years ago, you were outside of a comedy club, and you decided to ditch the line because it was too long. And you went to a place called Cleopatra's. Bring it. Tell us about that place. So here's the thing. There's a club right across the street. It's Club Soda, right? So... And just for last, they've got the comedy fest going on and they run multiple shows early and late. So we'd missed pretty much the early show. We were waiting for the late show and there was a long line. But instead of waiting for the line, because we had badges, we could skip the line once they opened the doors. We figured we'd go across the street and get a beer. There happened to be a strip club across the street. And Montreal strip clubs are fucking legendary. The bands love going there because how great they are, right? I mean, it's an epic part of the trip. So me and Jason went across the street to Cleopatra's. Figured we'd get a beer, maybe see a dance, be entertained. Being guys, you know, we're in Montreal for the weekend. It took us a good half a beer to realize that this was not just any strip club. This was a transgender strip club, and it was open to many things. And when we noticed that there were Adam's apples on these dancers, we were quite entertained, and we kind of hauled out of there really quick because we were caught off guard. And uh, apparently, this is something that happens quite a bit at the comedy festival that nobody tells you as it's kind of how you learn and earn your pledge into the mix of the comedy festival. There's no sign on the door. Well, it actually does say in the sign. Oh, it does? It does say. I've well, if noticed. you look, because it's an old school sign yeah. and it's kind of artsy and nobody's really going to pay attention to it, but it does kind of spell it out. But you really got to be paying attention to it. And we just weren't. We we're like, oh, strip club. And Lo and behold, it's a strip club with lots of Adam apples. And you know what? It was a new experience that I had never seen before. They looked like they were in a good time there. And it was a good beer. It was a lot of fun. But yeah, I, I know you like that story. We're happy to have that as part of our culture in Montreal. <laughs> Are there many of those or is Cleopatra special? I'm not sure. I'd imagine there's a couple. I'm not really sure, though. But strip clubs in general up there are kind of a big deal. It's, they're yeah. kind, of, kind of known for the, how great the strip clubs can be. Yeah. The drinking age in Montreal is 18 and it's the same age to enter a strip club. So often we get students from Ontario or kids from Vermont coming to Montreal just for, you know, drinking and strip club weekends. It was a fun time and it's a story I'll never forget. My time at Cleopatra's in Montreal. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Never let it be said when we are making fun of people on the podcast that no one is off limits, even me. Daniel Glick outing me and my partner on what is truly one of my most awkward stories in history. There'll be a full interview for Daniel Glick coming up in just a couple days. Kudos, Daniel. Hi, I'm Pino Sayoko, Spanish promoter for 40 years now. Promoter 101. Did you think we'd really forget to announce the Promoter 101 Badass of the Week? This week, we are delighted to announce Live Nation's Veronica Adura is the Badass of the Week. Well done, Veronica. Always on her game. Well done. I'm Sarah Beasley from Wolf Trap, and I'm on Promoter 101. In our feature interview this week, we have the production manager to the gods. He's worked with ACDC, Madonna, U2, and The Stones. He's the great one. Ladies and gentlemen, Jake Barry. 
Jake Berry, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for inviting me. The list is monstrous of who you've gotten to work for. The biggest bands in the world, when they want to do the biggest production in the world, they call you to figure out how to make that happen and get it from city <laughs> to city. Yeah, why do they do that? I wonder why. Somehow you keep making it happen. <laughs> Literally the biggest bands in the world call you to do this. And how you somehow make those tours come to life is insane. You know, it's me here taking all the credit, but it, to make tours happen is a multitude of people. It's a team effort, a team from top to bottom. It takes a team to book them. It takes a team to put them on sale. It takes a team to run it. And we're like the, you know, there's a few of us are, are like the generals and we just run it and we go into battle and we lead our troops and they all make us look good. I think you're being a little humble. Obviously, there are a lot of people when it comes to a stadium show to pull those things off, but somebody calling the plays and figuring out the hour and certainly being the coach of that team and that you get to call those plays and that happens night after night. Yeah, you know, it's great when a show works out great. Everybody pats on the back, oh, well done, Jake. But then some people are never there when a show really screws up and you get a kick up the ass, you know, <laughs> and it's the other way. So you, you take the rough with the smooth out here. You don't just start out doing the Stones and Madonna and you too. Clearly, there's a learning curve of building up to that level. How did you get into the business? Well, my story's been pretty well documented, but for those listening to here to 101, in 1975, I was living in a small village in the south of England. I was driving a truck delivering animal feed, way away from being production or anything to do with the music business. I'd play drums in a local band playing village halls, local hops and things like that, and really had a decision to make when I was 18 to either get a job and pay off the mortgage or the, uh, we call it the higher purchase on your drums to pay the weekly nut off. So I sold my kit, got a real job. And I thought, oh, you know, at least it was my little touch of stardom has gone away, but at least I enjoyed it. And then my brother, I have a twin brother, by the way, he was working as a thatcher. And for those of you who don't know what a thatcher is, one of these guys that climbs a roof and puts straw on the roof instead of tiles, very Anne Hathaway's type cottage, early Shakespeare type stuff, you see. And he was doing a cottage or a farm, actually, for, for Rick Wakeman, who was the keyboard player for Yes. And I got home early one day from work because delivering animal feeds, it was a morning thing more than a job that lasted all day. So if you're lucky, you could pick up a load at five o'clock in the morning and be done by 11. So village life consisted of hanging out at the pub. That's what you did. You went to the pub on every night, you sat in the same place, you talked to the same people, you drank the same thing. And if you're off at lunchtime, you went down to the pub for lunch and you drank and you sat in the same scene. But my mother said, your brother just called, he forgot something from work, can you go to his warehouse, so to speak, or his, his shop, pick up something and drive it down to, it was a place called Woodbury Salterton in the East Devon in England, and take it down to this place here. And I get there and I deliver it, and it's about noon or something like that, one o'clock, and Rick was there. I gave this thing what my brother wanted. I can't even remember what it was. And Rick said, oh, I'm going down to the pub for a drink. Rick was a pretty well-renowned drinker. He said, I can't take your brother because he's working. Do you want to come? He wanted to meet to drink with. I said, okay, I'll come down and have a drink with you, Rick. It's me. I'm going down to the pub. I'm a 22-year-old kid from a small village in East Devon, and I'm going down to the pub with a world-famous rock star. You know? Yeah, Yes was on top of the world. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, I was Jack the Lad. So Rick and I went down and we had a drink, and we got on really well, played darts and things like that. You're just hanging out and drinking and talking. Back in those days, the pub shut at 2 or 2.30, I can't remember. But Rick knew the landlord, and the landlord liked having a rock star in his pub. So when everybody left at 2.30, they kind of locked the doors, and you're, you're locked into the pub. Mm -hmm. We stayed there, and I left about 7 o'clock that night, totally plastered, totally hammered, got home. I don't know how I got home. I must have avoided every cop along the way to <laughs> drink driving. Never made it to work the next day and lost my job. 
And then Rick was producing the show, The Myths and Legends of King Arthur and the Knights at the Round Table on ice. It was a night show at Wembley Arena in London. And he said to my brother and I, hey, do you want to come up and give us a hand? And we go, what do you mean? He'll just look, I'll get your hotel room. You get yourself to London, just show up and you can help the crew set up light sound and you can just hang out and be a part of the team. I go, hey, you know, what the hell? So off we go, got up to London and we helped push in back line. We did what we're told, ran and got coffee for people. We were interns, if you like, you know, and we got to do everything that nobody else wanted to do. Go for this, go for that. Yeah, so we did. And at the end of the night, Rick goes, he goes, I'm going, he, he was in his solo projects and he was the English rock ensemble. He goes, I'm going to go take this tour to America. And he said, pointed to me, do you want to come with me and work with me? He said to my brother, I can't ask you because you've got a girlfriend and you're going to get married or something. So I can't ask you. But Jake here, he's got nobody, so I'll take him. So I went to America with Rick, and that's how it started. I did drums and percussion. That's amazing. Yeah. And then, you know, we did America, and then we went to Brazil. And I was thinking, I went to Brazil before I went to Scotland. Before I'd ever been to Scotland, I'd been to Brazil. And then when I got home, back to, you know, my mom's house where I lived then, he sat down, and it was like the end of a dream. And then I decided, well, I didn't decide it. I just thought, you know, I really like this. And my first ambition, I thought I was going to be a tour manager. That's what I wanted to be, tour manager and hang out with a band. And I didn't know what production was. So I decided that's what I want to do. I stayed with Rick, did a few more tours. And then a friend of mine who I met on Rick then became the tour manager of a little known Australian rock band called ACDC. <laughs> and I, I knew all the guys in ACDC, you know, the original Bon, Mal, Angus, Cliff, and Phil, because we all used to drink in the same pub. I'm noticing a theme here. Yeah. <laughs> drinking played a very big part in me getting into the business, as did drinking play a very big part in rock and roll in the early days, you know. And there was a lot of deals done in the pub, actually. A lot of crew hired in the pub, a lot of bands did deals in the pub. It was an extension of the office. And Ian, my friend, who now lives in Japan, and we still keep in touch, went to ACDC. We were looking for a production manager. He goes, I, you know, I know this guy, Jake, and he's been a stage manager for Yes, which was complete bullshit. You know what I mean? I've never been a stage manager. I stayed behind. I helped load the trucks. I want to do everything because I wanted to learn. So you managed to get on the stage for Yes show. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I, so I managed, you just moved the words I, around I a managed the stage very well, but I didn't <laughs> be a stage manager. And he said, he's a production guy. And Peter Mensch was a manager then. And they go, okay, we'll give him a chance. So they gave me a chance. I became the production manager for ACDC. I got on a plane to go to the first show for me was in Oakland, California, which is now Civic Auditorium, which I now think is the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium in Oakland. And that was my first gig. ACDC. And I went there and I said earlier to a lot of people, you know, who, who do you owe your career to? There's this gentleman called Joe Baptista. Joe Baptista was the guru of production, Aerosmith, all them bands, and pretty intimidating character, actually. Joe was going to see if I was going to make or break it. He was the judge and the jury. So we went there and he goes, look, I'm going to advance the show. Sit and listen. I want, you know, there's no fax machine. There's no internet. There's no computers. You had a hand piece of paper with a list of questions that Joe had, which he gave to me. His template. His template. You know, the sheet would consist of, you know, city, venue, promoter, promoter rep, phone number, home phone number. I mean, there wasn't a line item for cell number, didn't it? Or email right. address because it didn't exist. What loading like, well, how much power, how high was the rigging, was it an open steel? All these list of questions you asked the promoter, and that was your advance. So I listened to Joe, and, and Joe said, okay, the next one you're doing, and I'm going to listen to see how you do it. So I'm really nervous. And he goes, well, go ahead. And I, I really can't remember who the first person was, to tell you the truth. But rang it up, went through the questions religiously, really being anal about everything. 
You know, is it a mercury vapor lamp? Is it a halogen? You know, now you just go, oh, does your lights go on and off? You know, because you're not going to change how the light goes. You know, they've right. built it like that. And at the end, he goes, oh, you're okay. You got it. You can do this. Hmm. He went to Peter and he went to the band. He goes, look, he's a little green, but he'll do okay for you. And that's how I started. So there's a little bit of learn by doing on the job at that point. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, our industry is very much learning on the job. I don't think you can teach this in universities. I don't think you can teach it. People have go to university, get taught about it, but our education's on the road. Stadium shows have become a very streamlined thing over the last, I don't know, 10 years. But building a stadium show originally was random scaffolding and building stages and piecing it together. It wasn't like now where there's all these staging companies that have these magnificently built, beautiful stages that are wrecked. It's a whole new thing. So developing how to do stadium shows when everything wasn't uniform across the country or the world had to be an amazing challenge. Well, I mean, 79, when I started with ACDC, we just were never headlining. We were an up and coming band. So we were always second on the show. So we just showed up and we put our equipment on the stage because we were just doing a mixtures of big theaters and small arenas and then one or two headline arenas. I mean, so you really depended on the headliner to deal with those problems at that point. Never to deal with them. They gave us space. We went and played and we moved on. And, you know, ACDC, I don't know if you're aware, and I, I think I'm right and I hope I'm right. And somebody who may be on it, but I think the first two headlining shows ACDC ever did in America was Jacksonville Coliseum and the Hemisphere Arena in San Antonio. I think it was the first two shows they sold out, not headline, I'm sorry, sold out. So the stadium shows back then, if you look at pictures from like in Texas Jam, the Cow Jam, whatever it was mm -hmm. out here, you had a stage, you had big scaffolding decks on the other side and speakers on different levels, which you manhandled up. Or maybe if you're a lucky and professional, you had a chain motor to take it up. And you had a roof, which was like more of a protection for sun rather than anything else, right. not load bearing. Or sometimes they never had a roof. You look back at some of those like pictures of the early Grateful Dead shows or yeah. Pink Floyd shows. Yeah. They don't look like the most sturdy things in the world that were pieced together. You know, but then, I mean, that's all people could deal with. That's all they had to deal with. So they made that for them was amazing. This was, you know, big scaffolding PA wings. It didn't matter. It, the sound didn't, lights didn't matter. And some of the shows were during the day. And then, you, you know, people started, you know, they wanted more. Production got more. Stones, very instrumental for out productions. And then you got companies that built scaffolding and weight loading roofs that could do the shows. You know, one comes to mind, you know, over here is Mountain Staging, who started the whole thing with a bunch of scaffolding that they could pick up and move, put on the trucks and go to the next city instead of going down to your local scaffolding rental company and build me a stage at a painter's scaff, which you were lucky stayed together, or go into your arena and rent in a stage that they had in there for the outdoor shows. At some point, and I'm guessing it was probably the Stones, figured out that they had to take the stages with them or had to like uniform the stages that they were bringing so this production would go up and down. I really have no idea who was the first person or the first group to say, Okay, you know, staging's a part of touring. We'll take it with us. I guess that came when you started hanging a lot of sound and you started hanging some more lighting and people wanted to hang scrims in front of the PA to hide the scaffolding and everything so it wasn't so ugly. And then you realized that you needed something the same every day, not being different everywhere you went. And then people strung tours together. They strung stadium tours together. Now, at some point, the production became so big that you had to have stages that piggybacked and jumped and leaped because it takes way too long to build the steel and take it down. You couldn't play multiple times a week if you did that. Well, I'm sure that was in the early days of scaffolding stages. I'm sure Jim Evans at Mountain and people like Brown and everybody who had stages, you know, they would do one and and then maybe the bands would play arenas while the steel moved on and somebody goes, you know, if we had two of these, 
or if we had three of these, we could play more stadiums. And they goes, okay, so we'll order three times as much equipment, but we'll make sure that they can do it at three different times. And hence the leapfrogging stage comes in, one being taken down, one being used, and one being built. So I imagine you have some experience of the leapfrogging stages on some of your tours. I mean, all the stadium tours, you know, that I ever did, you know, in the 80s with Metallica and also some ACDC Monsters of Rock, they were leapfrogging stages. It was a big deal then. You have uh, two teams on the road at that point, staying with each stage? or You know, it depends on your schedule. Maybe you might have, if you wanted to play like a show, day off, show, day off, show, you had three teams. So you would have your three steel teams, which would go ahead. And you would have, I think back then, like eight supervisors that toured with the stage. And then you would have multiple amounts of local labor, up to 100, building these scaffolding PA wings on the side and scaffolding stages, which could be, you know, 60, 70 feet tall. So then when you have the pass line, because the pass line is where you hand everything up by hand and people station yourself at various heights and you pass it. So in order to make it, you couldn't have one pass line. You would have to make it in time. You would have to have a numerous pass lines. So you might finish up with, you would ask the promoter for 100 people that can climb scaffolding or maybe 50, and then 20 to stay on the ground lower level. Assembly line it all the way up. Exactly. That's exactly. just a massive scale of things, but you guys are doing it every day and you just build the system. Well, I mean, that back in those days, it was you didn't need certification. to be, If you weren't afraid of heights, you could build steel. Hmm. You know, I mean, you didn't need to have an OSHA 10 or you didn't need to have a work in height certification. You ha- and you weren't necessarily that experienced. You didn't clip yourself in with a harness. You just climbed. You know, you know there, was, there was no safety net or things like that, you know? It was very much like the cowboy era, you know? Looking back at it. Back then, it was cool. You see these guys climbing around still, like monkeys climbing around a tree. And it was fascinating, fascinating to watch these people. And then they would finish building a stage. They would go down and they would have a coffee break or something. And then they would load the production in. And they would do the production in and work all that day. And then you would do the show the next day and they would take the production out. And then when they finished work, they'd have another hour off. The production's gone and they would spend the rest of the night taking the steel down. So some of these guys would come and work 36-hour shifts. You didn't think twice about it. Nobody did. The, The guys didn't. Certainly the promoters didn't. Certainly the band's touring didn't. Certainly the city authorities didn't. Nobody thought twice. We were out in the wilderness somewhere. You know what I'm saying? Production became a thing when bands went outside, how to make it bigger and better and be the coolest. And you work for the bands that do the best production in the world. Right. When you're building stages, Zoo TV, like U2 is doing, or Steel Wheels of the Stones, the, the magnitude of these things, you got to be looking at these as you're building them and just figuring out how to get them from place to place and how you're going to take on this challenge. Because every time they outdo themselves and every other band, the challenge of figuring out how to build it and then take it down and move it and get it through custom, it's got to be awe-inspiring. Well, I never did Steel Wheels or Zoo TV, actually. Okay. And I was still making my name for myself with the Metallicas and the ACDCs. So I have to thank those tours for being big, wanting to get... Because they kind of set the bar for what to you come say in the, the future. You say the Rolling Stones set the bar. You say you 2 set the bar and things like that. Mark Fisher set the bar. If anybody knows know who Mark Fisher is, Mark Fisher, who unfortunately passed away five years ago, was the greatest stage designer that ever walked the earth. Phenomenal guy. He was an engineer. He was an architect and he was creative. You don't get that too much. And Mark was responsible for Steel Wheels, Zoo TV. Mark's first gig was the wall. Mark built the wall. He designed the wall, the original wall, which I may say that came out 
30 years later, when Roger Walters took the wall around, it was the same technology. They built it the same way, a little bit more sophisticated, but the theory was exactly the same as Mark designed 30 years ago. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. You know, so Mark Fisher, I was fortunate. I was the luckiest guy in the world to have Mark Fisher with me when I did Voodoo Lounge, which was really my first all-in-all big stadium tour with the Stones. I did stadium tours with Metallica and ACDC. And, you know, they were big. And people like Patrick Woodruff were around and things like that. So they were big. But the Voodoo Lounge tour for me was the first time that we strung a, a tour that was going to last for 100 dates. That was the plan. Michael Cole was the tour promoter from CPI. He'd done a deal with the Stones. You have to play 100 shows for X amount of money. So it was we knew it was going to be 100 shows. Mark was the creator. Mark made the show, and he taught me some things which are invaluable to my career. Invaluable. So when we did Voodoo Lounge, Mark designed that, which led to Paul McGuinness, then the U2 manager, coming to see it. And let me step back. And the Stones and Steel Wheels had three or four stages, two lighting systems, two sound systems, and two of everything. And I was a great believer that you should have one of everything. Don't ask me why, because it was always the same. So we set out with Voodoo Lounge with Mark to make it one set of backline, one set of lighting, one set of video, one set of sound. But multiple stages. Yeah, we had three stages. But everything on the stage is You know, the way it works is you have three stages, A, B, and C, or for me, it's always red, blue, and green are the first three colors. Everybody's one, two, three, A, B, C, I'm red, blue, green. Okay. Then you have universal. Universal for me was always purple. For some reason, don't ask me why. Hmm. And it would always be the same. When we did that, Mark designed it. So you were only piggybacking the steel. Everything else made it from gig to gig. Yeah, yeah. I've never piggybacked back line. And look, in this day and age, you have to because all the bands play festivals and you, you really got to have two sets of backline just in order to make the dates. But we had one set of backline, one PA system, one lighting system, one video system, and three steel systems. That's how we had on Voodoo Lounge. Well, it's probably more cost effective when you, if you can streamline it that way. You know, yes. You, you know, we finished loading out Voodoo Lounge the first night. It took a long time. It was 10 o'clock in the morning when the production came out. And outside the loading for RFK, it wasn't a great loading. It was two or three trucks at a time. And, you know, back then we had 30. So the logistics of doing two at a time doesn't work. And it was 10 o'clock in the morning. The sun's beating down. We're exhausted. And Ethan Weber, who was the, the board operator lightning director at that time, finished loading the rigging truck because it was the last thing. Ethan's still there. Great guy, Ethan Weber, by the way. The hardest working lighting LD you'll ever see in your life. So we're sitting on the grass bank there. And I'm kind of lying back and I'm sweating. I'm tired. And Ethan's, and we're exhausted, exhausted. And Ethan looked at me and he goes, well, and and I looked at Ethan and I said, you know, and Ethan reminded me of this. And I said, Ethan, you know, that wasn't so bad, was it? You know, so, (laughs) and he always remembers this thing. So it was, you know, going back to Mark, Mark was Voodoo Lounge. And then we learned how to do it with one system. And we became very, very efficient because no disrespect to the people before me, because they were great people. Michael Hearn for the Stones was a fantastic production, was an innovator, but he didn't get along with Michael Cole. Michael was the organizer, said, I'll take the Stones out, but I'm going to change production manager. And he offered it to me. You know, first of all, I didn't take it. I didn't want to replace somebody. I felt really bad about taking somebody's job. And so I said to Michael, I said, I don't know if I can do this, if, you know, if I'm putting somebody out of work. He said, I'll give you one chance. He goes, I'm going to tell you one thing, and then you've got to give me an answer. If you don't do it, somebody else will, but Michael's not going to do it. So what's your answer? I said, I'm doing it. So that was a sentence, you know, that changed it. Michael Cole kind of changed the business for the world when he figured out 
the global touring model. Michael Cole, to this day, no disrespect, I worked for some fantastic people, Arthur Fogel and all the people like that. But Michael taught us all. He taught Arthur. He taught me. Michael Cole could do a budget on a legal pad, one page. Just write down numbers very quickly. And if you kept that piece of paper and you were at the end of the tour and your production back then was $10 million, Michael's figures would have either been like 9999000 He was right on oh, it, huh? it was amazing. It was the speed. I mean, I sat in his room one day. He said, Jake, we got to work out a budget. Tell me these numbers. And we did a tour budget. And if it was 10 minutes, I'd be very surprised. For me, I grew up with, I had the best mentors. I had Michael Cole. I had Mark Fisher. I had the best. If I didn't learn from that, then I was never, ever going to make it. But I learned so much. The idea of a promoter doing a global tour, using the local promoters, you were always tapped into all of the local resources. And when they took touring and based it, centralized it out of Toronto for the world, that had changed the game a little bit as far as boots on the ground. Did that change the game as a touring for you at all? Not really. It was, you know, they were the promoters. Michael was the promoter and he would still have the local people in the towns we went to. We still had the local people. So Barry in Denver, Randy Levy Correct. in you know, Mini. Yeah, exactly. And I, so you still have you know, the boots amazing. It was probably Louis Messina in Houston. I'm at Polestar and Louis Messina's got the biggest grossing promoter company of the year, but he's head of Live Nation, which Live Nation is the foundation of the CPI. So Louis would have done it in Houston. So you still use their resources, except the promoter then got a fee and didn't take the risk. Michael took the risk. So you would call up. It's amazing. You say these names and there's still, I'd call up Steve Lawler. You know, he's here now today. Right. Steve, you know, we're coming to town. We got the tour. We're bringing the stage. We're bringing production. I need eight forklifts. This seat, I'm going to need a crane. I'm going to need an 80 ton crane. I'm going to need uh, 40 climbers. I'm going to need 20 stagehands for steel for five days. And then I'm going to need 100 stagehands for production in, production in. And we're going to need this kind of dress room stuff. And you always tapped into their resources. I don't think you could ever do a tour without local people. Well, and still the stadium at this point is local and they know all the players too. Well, they would know the local players, of course. Yeah. You go to a stone store and things like that, you might need eight runners. You need that local people for the eight runners. You might need a local caterer, you need that person. And that person in his market is going to get you the best deals. I mean, we tried doing national deals with Enterprise, I think, and, and for trailers. And we could never tap in. There would be a national deal, so to speak. Let's say a trailer was, and I'll just use these figures, $200 a week. It is more than that. But there may be a sale going on in San Diego that wasn't happening in Houston. So that trailer would be 150, but you didn't know it because your national reps didn't know what was going on in local markets. You needed your local people. You still need local people, whether it's global, whether it's a national tour, you have to use some local people. And you know, I, I still, I need local people. I mean, I can do it. I could go to a market with nothing and take it away, but it would be a real pain in the ass. Opening up a phone book and trying to uh, figure it out, opposed to the guy that open knows. Opening a phone book, but just going down, contacts, you know, hey, do you know somebody who can do this? Do you know somebody who can do that? You know, and I need labor. Uh, you know, you can put labor because most of the labor companies have, you know, more than one or two offices, so you could do anything across America. But we still need the locals. I mean, they're the lifebread of production and, and to tours. It, it seems like Live Nation has gotten that as they've been building out the boots on the ground. 
underground offices, the local offices more and more everywhere. Well, I mean, it's come full circle as there was a lot of local offices, you know, like, and a lot of people had motor offices. Like I said, I brought up Louis. Louis had Pace Concerts in Texas. Cellar Door had a bunch Cellar of Door, you know, Jack Boyle had a bunch up and down the East Coast. CPI in Toronto and DKD in Montreal. And who did Canada for you? You know, Avalon Attractions here on the West Coast with, with, with Brian, Murphy. Brian, Brian Murphy. God rest his soul. Great guy. And of course, you had Bill Graham Presents the grandfather of how to make shows really expensive in the nice possible way. <laughs> you know, and, you know, BGP were ahead of their time. They got into the ambience backstage before anybody knew what ambience was. Our Sodi brothers knew what ambience was before anybody knew how to spell it. All these people were characters in their own market. And so they all got bought up by Live Nation and they all became in a conglomeration. And as you know now, they've all come back and they're, they may be Live Nation, but they're more regional than they were now. I mean, there's, they, they run like in blocks, you know, in a country, there's areas that belongs to one guy runs, say, Central America. One problem was the well, Northeast, but you still have the local guys in their offices. It's, to me, come full circle and back to the locals a bit. When a tour is going out and you work globally when you go out with an act, right? Yep. So are there other places when you see them sneak into the routing that you realize, oh, that part of the tour is going to be really hard when we go to that part of the world? There's certain places that are more difficult than others for you? Well, you know, the world is, as we all know, in, in the touring years has got hugely smaller, you know, due to better communication to start with, better transportation. You know, you used to look at South America and go, oh my God, now South America is just an extension of an American tour because they're more organized. They got people. I mean, the language barrier is pretty tough, you know? Right. But I imagine you carry translators with you when you go down there. Uh, yeah, we got local translators. You know, we know how to get there, you know, and sometimes you get good ones. But, you know, we're a unique band of characters in the production thing. You know, we're the type of people that can go flat out for 18 hours. We're conditioned to that, you know? Right, because you, you got to get the show up. You got to get down. You, you're, you're on a time locals, schedule. You can, see, you can wear them out. I mean, me at 65, I could still wear out a younger person because I'm conditioned to this many hours. Right, you're used to it. Unfortunately, yeah. But the shows wouldn't play. You got to be to the next city. You got to get yeah, it up you know. and it's got to come down. But no, I don't think there's any country now that really frightens myself anyway. You know, you, you have to make things, you know, if you go to somewhere like India, then you want to take a few more crew due to the lack of experience of Indian stagehands and safety. So you just want to take a few more crew. So I would take another 12. I always go to a place like Hungary and pick up some crew and take 12 extra Hungarians with me. And they're hard workers, great workers, and they know the show. And, you know, you can give them to like your backline guys because there's nothing more annoying, especially on, on a U2 tour where you have multiple guitars. You don't want a bunch of strangers going down in guitar world because it's a pretty intimate thing. Yeah. Well, it's quite easy for somebody to pick something up and move on. And then half your loadouts here in your guitar tech moan because the locals are asking for picks or drumsticks. So I always found if you could get those people to do those jobs in those markets, and then go on and help like the sound lights and video. It really helps out a lot. But there's no other frightens me. That's what comes over time, though, is you know to take those 12 guys. You figured that out over the, of the run of doing the global tours. Purely by accident, actually. It happened on 360 by accident. We just needed some guys to pull cables up. I knew Adam from Hungary had some great people. So I called him and they had a company. And I said, can you get me some people? And they sent them out. And for, for us, it was like a fucking godsend. It's a genius thing. It was pure luck to start with. It's genius when it works, isn't it? You're not so genius if it didn't. Then you've got to convince your budget people that it will be a really good idea. Okay, so you two's your main biggest client, right? At the moment, yeah. A band like that, they go on cycle and off cycle. When they're on cycle, they work constantly. Yeah. 
and it's a long tour. They don't do 30 dates. They do a lot of dates. Well, I mean, you two this time, you know, on the last, we did Innocence Experience. Then they redid the Joshua Tree 30th anniversary. Then we did Experience and Innocence. So we actually went from like 2015 on and off to the end of 2018. An amazing production that they always seem to step it up. I mean, the Joshua Tree tour with the video that was so clean, so big, so massive, the stage, which was unique thrust, but it was like so clean and simple and the sight lines were amazing. Like they really went simple, but big and graceful. You, you know, at the end of the day, a large video screen, it's just, it's like Lego, isn't it? It just takes more Lego to build it. Then if you have a 200 foot wide screen, it's going to take more Lego bricks or more panels to build it than there's 150. Once you get into the flow, the first days, I mean, we looked at that screen the first day, I think it took us like nine hours to put it up. And when you look at the first time, you go, this shit, this is never going to work. And it's every tour. This is never going to work. How the hell are we going to do it? And every production manager that you'll ever interview, every person you interview in a row, when you do the first show, you look back and go, this is never going to work. We'll, I'll step back to 360, you know, which was the biggest tour ever to undertaken up until Taylor Swift this past year, truck-wise. I can only gauge the size of the production by the number of trucks. I can't gross it. I can't tell it by the number of ticket sales. For me, it's the bigger the production is how many trucks it was. And Taylor and the team outdid us in Europe. Now, I don't know if they were counting merch trucks or whatever, but they had more trucks than we did. What's the most trucks you've ever taken out? 54 production on 360. You're assuming almost always something's going to happen when you have that many vehicles running nonstop. Like, uh, you know, logistics I mean, have got to be nightmare. Like I say, you started 360 and you're, you're always concerned if it's ever going to work. I mean, we loaded into the Nou Camp Stadium in Barcelona. And the first three days is going great. And then the, we put the generators on the street outside and the neighbors complained about the generators. So... Instead of having three three big generator units that we toured with us, we had to go and get, I think, 18 smaller ones and bring them inside. And it was, there's a generator city stage left. But when the show finished, the things that we found out, you know, I was talking about the stones being 10 o'clock in the morning. And I'm saying to Ethan, it's not so bad. 360 was four o'clock in the afternoon. And the next day? The next day in 90 degree weather in the Spanish sun in the middle of June, I believe. That's when you go, what the fuck have I got myself into? What have I got my team into? I mean, we were so late, we missed our own charter plane, <laughs> you know? But we got there and it, it took that long as we had to take at least five trucks worth of equipment up 80 feet in the air into the roof of the structure. Our motors coming down were getting so, so hot. hot for me. It was 30 minutes of load. We were taking naps while the load came down and getting a tan. And then we went to Milan and then we loaded out and finished at 10 in the morning. Everybody goes, oh, that's a long time. But you figure, we just knocked seven hours off the <laughs> load. We've just knocked You're a day. You're super excited. Yeah, we was ecstatic. And then there comes a point in every tour when you know you've got it. There's a day when you think, this will work. And I can tell you on 360, it was a place called Gelsenkirchen in Germany when it was a dome stadium and we loaded the show out. Granted, all the trucks were inside. It was simple. And it was a concrete floor. You couldn't get any easier. But we walked outside. And it was still dark. And I go, this will be okay now. <laughs> the ultimate. Yeah. It's still dark. That was the goal. Yeah. I said to Jörg Phillips, who owned Beat the Street, who I rented my tour buses from, I said, I wanted a reduction on the first two weeks of the tour because I never used the headlights. When the act is on cycle for something like you 2 Touring it's one thing, but planning it has got to be a monster thing. And your logistics have got to start way early in that process. How long before you guys actually hit the road are you starting to figure out the pieces? Well, on you 2 and I'll use you 2 as an example, is I work very closely with Live Nation Global, Jerry Barrett, who books the, all the dates. You know, we're going on tour, so we'll book it. 
and then try to get a design together when our new designers are Mark's company, Stewfish, Rick Lipson, and Ez Devlin and Willie Williams. Then we put the stage in place and then we try to guess how many seats we're going to kill with the production so the tickets can go on sale. That's the first thing. And that's why there's always a release of tickets the day of the show in a stadium show is because you guys are building a seating chart based on what you're hoping the specs are going to be before you ever build it. I was listening to some of the panels and you can have all the 3D CAD drawings you want. It's the real thing that counts. And after all the years, I must admit, I get pretty close because I get pretty anal about where my stage goes and it's placed. So that's when I start. And it would be sometimes a year ahead of the tour. Not full time, just working bits and pieces. But I would do that to make sure I didn't have any issues when we loaded the show in. I'm trying not to have issues when we're on the road. Putting the teams together, the pyrotechnics, the video, the backline, transportation, the hospitality, the act, the circus of that city you tour with, just the logistics itself seems like a nightmare, but it just seems like another day at work for you the way you talk about it. Not to get too cocky, but when you've done a few, there's a format. Click, copy, repeat a little bit. Uh, yeah, copy and paste a little bit, you know. You have your format. And the format is really like algebra. X amount of people, X amount of truck equals Y amount of people equals W amount of buses. That equals the number of hotel rooms. That equals the number of salaries. That equals the, what the wage is going to be. So that is one formula. Just before that, you get a lighting system and you get with your lighting crew chief. And I'm fortunate enough, I try to work with the same one all the time. So he goes, you know, Jake, I'm going to need eight trucks of lighting. You go to your video company, I'm going to need five trucks of video. So you really got that out. And when you've done the budget a year out, you kind of guess you're never going to start less than 36 trucks for a stadium. You start any less for you 2 you're kind of wasting your time. When a band like you 2 does decide to do an arena tour instead of stadiums and both the Stones... We don't and- cut back trucks. We just put 25 indoors. It's really interesting. When they do do the arenas instead of the stadiums and they cycle back and forth between doing the arenas and stadiums, does that make life easier? Smaller production, smaller day, smaller everything? Or once you're scaling up on a production that big, it's just, it's going to be big. You know, I think that we all sit, I mean, we do a large arena tour, like I said. We took 28 trucks into an arena. We would take 30 trucks into a stadium. You have more room in a stadium, but it doesn't rain in an arena. But then again, it, the sun doesn't shine in an arena. So when it's raining, you wish you were in an arena. When the sun's shining outside, you wish you were doing stadiums. Well, that's an interesting thing that you bring up. The roof. You guys have given up the roof on almost all the massive stages now in the stadiums. When it rains, the bands just deal with it? You know, it was Mick and Keith, you know, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards. When Mark designed the steel wheels had a small roof, in Voodoo Lounge, we had a roofette, but it really only protected the drums and the back line, to be perfectly honest. And if the band wanted to go underneath it, they could get protection. But it's over their head. A lot of people think the rain comes straight down. It doesn't. It comes in on an angle. And Mick and Keith there said, you know, if it's raining, our fans going to get wet, we'll get wet. So if you ever saw an Oak Stone show, and Mick, Keith and Ronnie, when they come on the stage and it's raining, would go right down stage in the rain and play the first song without rain protection. We're in it with the fans. That was their philosophy. That is so amazing. I know you got to go, but before I let you go, do you have any advice for anybody that wants to work in this industry? It's great. It's fantastic. For me, you know, as I progress along, I do a lot of electronic shows now, festivals. There are a lot of festivals for Insomniac, EDC, the Lecture Daisy Carnival. And I was speaking to Pascal Rotella, the owner of the company. I go, you know, and I really wanted to thank him for giving me an extra lease on my life because I found something that's really exciting as well. You can still grow. And if somebody comes into business, it's a great business. Look, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I've worked hard to be where I am, but I'm the luckiest guy in the world to have seen what I've seen, done what I've done, worked with some of the greatest bands, worked with a lot of great people, whether it be creative 
whether it be a carpenter or a rigger or a sound guy or a backline guy. I've worked with some great people and it's fantastic. It is amazing. I, I cannot tell anybody what amazing life in it. But if you think you're coming out here and you're going to party with a band, then don't leave home because you don't. Yeah, it's not, it's not, uh, only not maybe once work. at the end of the tour. <laughs> you know, and if you're a lighting guy and you're out on a big tour, you may never meet the band. You may never know who you are, but you're still part of the team. Thank you so much for taking the time, Jake. My pleasure. Thank you for having me here. Enjoy the rest of the day and the rest of the podcast. Holy shit, Jake Berry is like the fucking coolest guy on the face of the planet. So excited we had him here on Promoter 101. I don't think we can do better than that. Holy shit, Jamie, that was amazing. So awesome. Hello, this is Sarah Mertz. I work at Eventbrite, and you are listening to Promoter 101. The quote of the week comes to us from Samuel Butler. Life is like playing a violin in public and learning the instrument as you go. It's kind of deep, Jamie, don't you think? Very. Hi, it's Ken Deans. I'm here on Promoter 101 with Steiny and the crew, talking about all sorts of great stuff. So we've come to the end of the road on this episode, but if you have something for us, you can send us an email at steiny at promoter101.net. We'll be back this Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific and 7 p.m. on the East Coast. Thursday, we have Eventco's Daniel Glick in the hot seat kind of payback, you know? I wish I could say that uh, I had let him do the turn the tables question before I interviewed him so I could get a little payback, but I interviewed <laughs> him first and then we did that. So he got the better of me this time, Mr. Glick. I'll get you next time, Mr. Glick. <laughs> <laughs> so he'll be back next week, which is a stellar interview. And a big thanks to you, Jamie, for co-hosting today. You are most welcome. And until then, we wish you sold out shows for the week. Cheers. Call your mother. Hi, I'm Sarah Pelch. I'm on Promoter 101. 